Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Anthony Caldellis for a conversation about what life was like in Attica, Greece in late antiquity. So Attica, Greece is in Athens in its corresponding region. Late antiquity, Dr. Caldellis points out in the episode, was between roughly the 3rd and early 7th centuries AD. In the conversation, we explore what civilization was like in this region during this period of time, including the topics governance structures, religious beliefs, religious tolerance, educational offerings, notable thinkers and writers, products produced, and more. Dr. Caldellis is professor and chair of the Department of Classics at The Ohio State University in the U.S. He's the author of a number of publications, including the monograph, The Christian Parthenon, Classicism and Pilgrimage in Byzantine Athens, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Anthony. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Okay, so so that we're all on the same page, you, me, uh, listeners, um, when... We talk about Attica, Greece. Where are we talking about? Uh, roughly the territory around the city of Athens. So Athens is the core. It's got some fields and plains and mountains around it. Uh, so that's the area that we're talking about. Roughly the territory of the ancient city-state of Athens in the classical period. Okay. And late antiquity. Let's talk. What, what time frame are we talking about there? Uh, roughly between the 3rd and the early 7th centuries A.D. Uh, so it's a time of pretty significant transformation in the uh, Europe, the Near East, North Africa, the whole Mediterranean region, right? So this is the period during which the Roman Empire goes Christian, Constantinople is born, uh, and the Western Roman Empire falls, and at the end of it, Islam becomes a major world power. So that's the period. Okay, so a lot happened over those four centuries so let's uh let's talk a little bit more about about some of those comments so we're in attica greece it's between third and seventh century what would have been the landscape at that time from a polities perspective like city states uh a territorial type perspective well the roman empire was basically a, an empire of cities in the sense that its administration was largely based on cities and their territories. So a province of the Roman Empire was the sum total of each city, it's a little dot, with its little territory. And you aggregate those into clumps and th that's your province. And so the Roman emperors send out governors for those provinces. Um, and in some provinces you have armies and in some you don't. In Attica you don't because it's not really near any frontiers. It's not a strategically sensitive area. And so in this period, Athens is a civilian, it's part of a civilian province and it's relatively demilitarized um, as is most of Greece. Uh, the governors tend to get involved in local cultural events, you know, rather than, you know, defending the mm -hmm. border against barbarians and things like that. Mm -hmm. There are a few barbarian raids that reach, a couple reach Athens uh, in this period. Uh, but um, overall, it was relatively peaceful, prosperous time for the Athenians of this period. Did... At the time, did Greeks or, or Romans 
call that area Attica or was that a term that was created as a neologism afterwards? No, it could be called Attica. That's an ancient uh, word for the place. It could also be, you know, called Athens. It sometimes in the Roman Empire and in antiquity generally, um, the, the, the habit was not so much to refer to cities as places the way we do or territories, but rather the people in them. So you would find references to the Athenians, right? Um, hmm. But also to Athens and, uh, yeah, no, those are all contemporary terms. Now, if you really want to get poetic and classicizing, you might call it the city of Kekrops hmm. or of Athena. Yeah, I mean, just classical mythological references. Those are very much still in vogue at this time and would remain so with regard to Athens uh, forever after down to today. Uh, so yeah, those terms are good. What is Kekrops? Uh, one of the mythical founders of Athens. If you go back in the mythological tradition, the early kings before you reach Athena, there's some, you know, hazy characters like Erechtheus and Kekrops and, you know, king, the early kings. Okay. So was at that time was Attica considered only Athens or was there Athens within a larger territory of Attica uh, yeah Athens is the either the urban center like around the Acropolis as a city right or the political organization of the territory which included Attica that could also be called Athens so Cities okay. were, um, you know, had civic institutions. They had their own local magistrates and councils and, you know, local sort of law enforcement and things like that that were part of the overall Roman administration. So those um, instruments of civic self-governance kind of interfaced with the Roman administration at some point, usually through the governor. Um, and, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's how most of the cities in the empire uh, were, to, you know, uh, joined to the Roman administration. Those institutions in Athens, some of them were quite ancient, so there'd be references to the Areopagus and so forth. Mm -hmm. They clearly didn't have the same kinds of, you know, functions and jurisdictions that they did when Athens was an independent mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. But in our period, we're a long time away from that. Right. So Athens has mm. been part of the Roman Empire by this point for centuries. And so it's it's the, it's a in many respects, the cities are mm. becoming during this period, local branches of the Roman imperial administration. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the, the actual people of that time in Attica, if historians know this, what would be the percentage of people that are are at least reasonably considered indigenous by this point to Attica or the or the region uh, and then what percent would be would have been uh, emigre from the west from from Rome uh, we, well, we don't have data to answer those kinds okay. of questions however we also don't have references to mass you know immigration into Attica during the centuries of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. There's no reason to think that there was any kind of de demographic overhaul in the period of antiquity. Now, obviously, Athens is a major cultural center. Um, we'll talk about that in a bit. And so it attracts people from all over. Um, 
certainly German administration, you know, their high officials coming and going. There are a lot of Romans who just like to go settle and live there mm -hmm. because it's a beautiful place. It has tremendous cultural attractions. It was a, a, a university town. It had, you know, performances of rhetoric and all kinds mm -hmm. of things going on. So people would go, especially wealthy elites from the empire, would love to go and settle there and live there for the same reason that someone might want to go live in a, you know, university town in, you know, North America, just because of the cultural attractions and the lifestyle. Um, it's also a beautiful place in itself. And in addition, <clears throat> we know that Athens had many schools and these attracted students from all over the empire, from mm. the west and the east, and even from outside the empire. Uh, lots of Armenians uh, would come to study in Athens. Mm -hmm. And so there was a large contingent of students from, let's say, out of town, but I don't, I don't think they would have affected the demography that much. Uh, nevertheless, you could, for that reason, call it a kind of multicultural place. You, wanted to seek out people from all over the empire you could pro you would find them there more than you would say at thebes right a, a 40 minute drive away yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a cosmopolitan of its time <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no i mean and it it built itself that way yeah yeah um what was the language that was predominant at that time in terms of writing and speaking I'd say almost exclusively Greek. Now, the question is which type of Greek? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So spoken Greek at this time is evolving, you know, in a direction that will result in a few centuries in something that's very much like modern Greek. So in Byzantium, just a few centuries later on, we can sort of confidently say that they're speaking a form of modern Greek. In the period of late antiquity, that transformation is still, you know, taking place. Spoken language was clearly not, you know, what Thucydides and Demosthenes had once written. It's much closer to modern Greek than that. Nevertheless, mm. Athens was, as I said, it was a kind of university town, and students came to it precisely in order to learn how to use the ancient dialect, uh, Attic Greek, right, and to be trained in rhetoric, which meant real mastery and command of the, you know, the classical purest forms of ancient Greek. And so there were schools all over the city and there were performances and students giving demonstrations. And the, when the governor comes, the students would give speech. Yeah, the professors would give student um, speeches to honor the governor and, and Rome and things like this. Mm -hmm. So it was also a real center for the uh, cultivation and performance mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, classical Greek as well. Why do you think by this point in time, this area had the reputation that it had for being a place to send uh, children off, perhaps, um, for uh, schooling? Well, I mean, Athens had been a pioneer, even in antiquity, in establishing schools, right? I mean, the first, let's say, institutions of higher learning in history that we know of, but the first one is in the poetic imagination of Aristophanes. So in his play, The Clouds, he sort of concocted this kind of research graduate seminar that a figure called Socrates is running off on the edge of town. 
uh, we know that Socrates did not operate an institution like a mm. school, formal school like that. But Aristophanes imagined it because he had a tr tremendous, you know, and fertile imagination. Um, and a few decades later, Plato creates the Academy, and then his student Aristotle creates the Lyceum, and so forth. So Athens had very early on um, established its credentials as a pioneer in higher education, and it cultivated that reputation um, throughout the following centuries, all the way down to late antiquity, which is kind of when it ends. I mean, at the, the, the troubles at the end of late antiquity pretty much, you know, end that tradition. Mm. But in late antiquity, it is one of the predominant university towns in the Roman Empire. It's got prestige. It's got the, all the traditions and the, the ancient schools. So there are schools of philosophy. There's even an academy which claims to be a direct descendant of Plato's academy. And, you know, we're not sure that, you know, it's a con direct continuity there, but that's how they pitched it. But remember also one other thing that the classical texts that you are studying in late antiquity, right? So you're like in the fourth century and you want to learn to be a master orator. You want to be a classical scholar. You want to learn to use ancient Greek. The main texts that form the classical canon were written by Athenians and are often about Athens. So mm. all of the obscure local references and the mythology and all of that, they point you to Athens. In other words, it's a place not only where you can study the tradition, it's a place that the tradition is itself about, right? So uh, that ha that was a double attraction. And so uh, the, the, the city of Athens cultivated that as a as kind of a part of its brand. Hmm. What did the people of the state at that time? How did they relate to religion and uh, and and mythology? So by the state, do you mean the Roman state or the local civic authorities of Athens? The the local people. So if we were to talk about the actual uh, Greek Greek population at that point in time, what was their relationship to uh, right. religions and mythology? Right, so it's important to set the context here. So in the fourth century, the Roman Empire is undergoing a fairly rapid process of Christianization. So after Constantine, right, who's the first uh, Christian emperor, the uh, all of his successors, bar one, are also promoting Christianity uh, across the empire with all kinds of uh, legislative and structural reforms and, and, and so forth. Athens was kind of even notorious in the period of late antiquity for being a very late adopter of Christianity. So the, the city stuck to its ancient traditions kind of stubbornly. Uh, we find, you know, pretty flourishing pagan intellectual scenes all the way down into the sixth century. The, the architectural footprint of Christianity in the city is kind of meager for a while it picks up in the fifth century but it's pretty clear that it's not dominant uh not until the the sixth century and and that's also when a number of the ancient temples like the parthenon is are converted into churches so that happens uh, i think in the late fifth century right and then possibly in the 470s 480s so the city authorities are you know in so far as many of them are also the product of the schools and the schools tend to be, you know, run by pagans. That is, you know, people who believe in the ancient gods, however 
they understood them philosophically or you know in, in some other way nevertheless they were very um open to having christian students so so that they didn't let that get in the way of their you know their, their demographic uh so we see that in the schools in the fourth century we we have pagan and christian teachers we have pagan and christian students uh, sometimes who are the students of the same teacher um and this didn't seem to be too much of a problem so we don't have in athens uh, instances of you know religious tensions among the students or the faculty uh we do find those kinds of tensions for example in alexandria in the fifth century that uh, that seems to be a much more volatile kind of city overall like alexandria is it's a pretty dangerous place um and those kinds of tensions you know burst out but and you know, alexandria is also a massive city it was much more important for imperial affairs for all kinds of other reasons um so athens is this you know politically and economically more of a sort of quiet out of the way place where everybody is going and learning classical culture you know mm-hmm. regardless of their own personal religion um in fact one of the leading church fathers of this period uh, gregory of nazianzus he's from uh, central asia minor uh, just cappadocia and he spends 10 years in athens before basically his father threatened to cut him off uh and he had to go back home and get a job to put it you know in mo- in modern terms that's pretty much what happened but anyway and and he would have stayed on and this is the man who went on to pretty much define christian doctrine in the tail end of the arian controversy that is mm. actual theology and he became the archbishop of constantinople uh, during the Second um, Ecumenical Council, though he resigned in the midst of it, uh, he, he was a difficult person, um, but he loved classical culture, and he was there at the same time as Julian. Julian was the nephew of Constantine, uh, who became emperor in 361, and Julian was raised as a Christian prince in the family of the first Christian imperial um, emperor, but he through his studies he sort of converted himself back to the old religion and he came out when he became emperor so he was a sort of a secret pagan for years when he was with gregory of nazianzus there were fellow students in athens uh, julian would have been in his pretending phase so he's pretending mm-hmm. to be christian but at any rate there were plenty of other pagans most of the professors were pagan so it's a kind of mixed environment in that way uh, I think that the, uh, the the city's brand was very much invested in mythology and sort of cultivated that for as long as it could, mm. even when eventually they sort of threw in the towel and the city sort of converts to Christianity. They do it with minimal disruption and intervention. So the Parthenon is converted into a church more or less as it was. They even left the the statues of the gods and the on the uh, pediments as where they you know um so you're going to the Mm. like the cathedral of the city which is up on the acropolis and there's poseidon and athena right on the outside they didn't seem to destroy temples as happened in other places uh in the empire like in syria and so forth where first they sort of smash them or tear them down or use them as quarries to build other things and maybe decades later they'll build a church on the site but 
in Athens, this was done pretty quickly and with minimal disruption. And, you know, Athens keeps its name too, which is the name mm. of, a, of a goddess. Mm. Uh, other cities that were named after goddesses sometimes change their name, like uh, Aphrodisias in, in Asia Minor, it changed mm. its name to Stavropolis, which means city of the cross. Uh, you know, Christians didn't want their city to be named after Aphrodite, who was probably the most objectionable of all of the ancient gods. But Athena was okay. Hmm. And there's probably a long list that could be cited, but are there any other notable thinkers that you think worthwhile to cite from this uh, region and period of time? From Athens? Yeah. Oh, um, well, a lot of them passed through. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the most influential in the long term, apart from Gregory of Nazianzus and his friend, Basil of Caesarea, who became the Bishop of Caesarea in Asia Minor. And Basil was also there maybe for five years, not 10. Mm -hmm. And he became like this model Bishop, like in the 370s. Um, in later Byzantine tradition, he is, was regarded as sort of an ideal kind of Bishop, very educated, but he had less interest in all the classical stuff. Like he, he took the rhetoric and he took the education but he, he wasn't as excited as Gregory was um, about all of the, um, you know, the classical references and things like this. Um, so those would be the most important ones on the, um, on the Christian side. Now, in the fifth century, we have probably the most influential and important Neoplatonic philosopher, and this is Proclus. Proclus wasn't from Athens, but he went to Athens to study within the, in the Platonic school. And he, he became the head of the Platonic school, the academy, for decades and decades in the 5th century. And his writings, many of them survive, uh, are the most developed form of Neoplatonic thinking that influenced both Eastern and Western you know, philosophy and even mysticism and continue to do so down to today. And I should add that there was one figure who also proved to be hugely influential, though we don't know who he or she was, though almost certainly a student of Proclus. This is a person we call Pseudo-Dionysius, Pseudo-Dionysius. Um, in other words, it's someone who came out of the school of Proclus who's pretending to be the Dionysius, not Dionysius, Dionysius, Mm -hmm. Dionysus is the god. <laughs> Dionysius, the uh, convert of St. Paul, who's mentioned in Acts. So in, in Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul goes to Athens and he gives a speech, which the Athenian philosophers laugh at. And, but afterwards, he makes these converts, um, and Dionysius is one of them. But that's all that Acts says. Around the late 5th or early 6th century, some Christian in though it's been argued that it wasn't a Christian, it was a pagan pretending to be a Christian, um, wrote this sort of massive corpus of Platonizing Christian theology that's highly metaphysical and esoteric and has lots of gradations of orders of beings and angels and things like this in Greek that is, is sort of presented as an authentic Christian theology from the hands of one of St. 
Paul's converts. Now, it clearly isn't, and even in Byzantium, they knew, some, some, some scholars knew that this is clearly not first century AD material, <laughs> that it's you know probably much later and, and very close to Proclus, but many didn't believe it, um, including in the West, and so there's a, there's this whole tradition of Christian esotericism and metaphysics that comes from Pseudo-Dionysius's Christian revamping of Proclus. The identity of this person who must have, you know, gone through Athens or at some point is continues to be highly debated. Uh, every few years, someone will hypothesize it's this person, it's that person. Um, it's a, it's a sincere, you know, mm. deeply pious work of Christian devotion or it's a pagan Trojan horse, uh, you know, this, uh, it's just, it's meant to trick Christians into letting Platonism in through the gates. And once we're in, we can take over. Yeah. And so mm. like all these interpretations of these texts. Um, so that's also a pretty famous, uh, uh, text that emerges from this kind of Athenian milieu. Hmm. Interesting. So if we switch gears to trade and commerce for a moment, was Attica known as a place to produce uh, products? And if so, what are some things that it might have produced that was common? Uh, or was it more known to import a lot of its goods? Well, so all ancient economies, pretty much wherever we look, are predominantly agricultural. right? So trade and export are always a marginal fraction of production and surplus. Um, you know, we might estimate it between, you know, 10 and 20% max. So even when we're talking about late antique Attica with its, its schools and all of that, we still have to understand that the economy is predominantly agricultural and, and always was. And um, Attica does have, you know, some productive resources. It's not famous at this point for exporting any particular type of product. Uh, or, or for large-scale imports, it does obviously. Uh, you know, the olive oil and wine and things like this. There are products that are associated with Athens in the literary tradition, but it's not entirely clear that they're actually bulk exports at this time. For example, the honey of Mount Hymetus, mm. right? Which is this. Like, in Greece, we call things a mountain, mountains, but they're kind of hills, right? So it's it's this rocky hill that, that you see to the east if you're standing on the Acropolis. And it's famous for its honey, you know, ever since antiquity. Uh, so hmm. I, I don't think that there's any I mean, huge volume of export of it. Uh, no, I, I offhand, I can't think of any particular product that it exported at any, you know, uh, lamps, maybe. Uh, I think there was a ceramic so in in antiquity lighting is usually provided by a lamp okay. uh which is like a clay vest uh container that you fill with oil and and you light mm -hmm. a wick at the end mm -hmm. uh in the seventh century they shift to candles okay. uh you know throughout the byzantine empire more or less but in this period um attica is producing a great deal of of lamps and because they're they're these mm. flat vessels, uh, you know, little containers that, that have a surface on the top you can stamp with an image, and so they put a lot of you know their pagan mythological images 
uh, on them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that might be one. But certainly the, the, the export culture, in other words, you know, you send your son and with resort, obviously, with money, and we'll train them, and then they go back and take our soft power with them. So that's a that's a major export in that sense. Hmm. Where were they importing the candles from later in the period? No, candles are made. Um, uh, so candle making is a sort of staple industry in the Byzantine economy. Um, so much so that even some uh, people were named after it, like the family names, like the way we have Fletcher and Smith and things like that. They were called kirularios, which means a candle maker. Um, presumably, almost every every town in the Byzantium had its own candle making. I'm like that's a pretty basic thing. So in Attica, uh, they were making candles as well. Eventually, at some point. yes. Okay. Um, okay. But the thing is that. Uh, candles don't leave an archaeological trace, whereas ceramic um, mm. uh, lamps do. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. things. Yeah, this is a problem with archaeology. Um, it's not. It's not a problem with archaeology as such. It's just a problem with the record. So when when technologies change, some leave a better record than others, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. The, that the technological change is, you know, some sort of decline or step down or anything like that. I mean, it just depends. So the switch from ceramic to candle, I don't think, you know, is any kind of step down in terms of quality or lighting or anything like that. But it is a step down in the sense that you're not leaving a record of it. And the same goes for trade. So if you switch from ceramics to if you're say using barrels or skins flasks um those don't leave a record um unless you know you have the metal bands on the back so these are you know they're in themselves neutral changes that however can create the appearance of oh you're moving into a dark age on the other hand there are some changes that indicate a decline in living standards so for example uh, roof tiles. Mm -hmm. When you and a Athens is certainly producing a lot of roof tiles, and then it kind of stops. When you're when you stop finding roof tiles in the archaeological record, that can mean one of two things: either the population significantly decreased or left a place, because those kinds of ceramics are among our, you know, leading indicators of population, or they switch to thatch. So their, their roof is not, you know, wood and tile, but, you know, wood and, you know, thatch. And that is definitely a step down in terms of living quality um, for a number of reasons. I mean, it's, it's you know, more dangerous, you get infestations and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, but we're digressing now um, into, you know, archaeological matters. Mm -hmm. Um, so in present day, back to the honey comment for a moment on the the uh, the mount mountain in Athens. Can you still get honey there? Well, I, I certainly get honey that's marketed that way, <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't actually know where it's from, but yes, uh, you you find little jars of honey that claims to be high meat honey, um, and I'm cool. thinking, okay, was this like? <laughs> 
is this a combination of honey made in Bulgaria and Italy and they just, just blended it together or whatever, you know? It's hard to know these days. I, you remember there's a while ago, like the Italians were running this scam where they were buying olive oil from all over the Mediterranean and just kind of re, re, you know, hmm. putting it all together in a vat and then reselling it as high quality, you know, virgin Greek olive oil, whatever. So, hmm. but yeah, it's still a prestige. It's not a brand in the sense of being a company, but it's a, it's a brand product in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Because it's famous from, from ancient sources. So what would have been the approximate population of Athens in this period? What are we talking about for the number of people? Oh, we have no idea. Okay. Now, having said that, it's my professional duty to tell you that we do not know this. <laughs> having said that, yeah. um, let me just say that the population of ancient Attica, so in the period of the democracy, when we have a lot more scholarship and people seriously invested in you know, getting a rough picture of demographic, you know, estimates and so forth. The population of Attica has been estimated variously between a quarter of a million and 400,000 people, uh, which is a lot. Um, now, after that, you know, the history of Attica goes through ups and downs. In late antiquity, it's a relatively prosperous place. It's not seriously disrupted, except by periodic outbreaks of plague. There's a big one in the third century, um, and another very big one in the sixth century. Though there's and there's debates about how much you know those affected the the size of the population and mortality. But I, I think that those kinds of figures, like maybe quarter of a million, that might give you a good you know to ballpark figure of the population of. Attica, yeah, right. Because remember, Attica is like all these decentralized little villages and little harbors, and and a big mm-hmm. harbor, the Piraeus. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the that population would have been pretty spread out. What was houses made of in this period? Um, well, again, we can talk about the houses whose foundations survive. Mm. If if someone built a wooden, if someone had a wooden house, um, we wouldn't really know that it existed, right? So like I'm now in Columbus, Ohio, the house that I live, so I grew up in Athens. So we're, we're talking about my, my home hometown mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And in Athens, because we have earthquakes, we build with cement, <laughs> reinforced concrete, right? And that feels to me, because I grew up there, like that's a real house. And and here in Ohio, there are no earthquakes, uh, except for the ones caused by fracking. Um, the the houses like wooden frames and drywall. So if someone like runs up the stairs on the other side of the house, the rest of it kind of shakes and you can feel it. E- even after all of these decades of living in the U.S., I'm still not convinced this is a real house. Again, mm. like a wolf might come and blow it down. I mean, it's, mm. it's just, yeah. Okay, so there's probably a lot more in terms of, you know, residential options uh, in late antiquity than we see in the archaeological record. Because what we see in the archaeological record are largely like villas around the Acropolis, like really elite, you know, type um, you know, domiciles uh, that some of them we even suspect that they were owned or used by the, some of the professors, uh, in part because of the 
their you know their adornment and the mosaics and mm. you know, things like this. Uh, also, because our literary texts talking about these professors will will say he had a house that was you know right, you know, right underneath the Areopagus and uh, whatever, and lo and behold, there's this big villa there. And mm. anyway, and those are you know stone and tile and mosaic and um, you know just like a Roman villa, typical Roman villa. Now, what other people lived in? Once you start going down the social, well, you know, probably stone. I mean, uh, Attica's, as we have stone in abundance. Mm, mm. Yeah. How did home ownership work in in terms of um, was was rent a thing at the in this period yet, or what were all homes owned by the corresponding families? Um, no, in in the Roman Empire, generally, you have sort of all the regimes of home ownership and renting and leasing that you would have today. Like, it's it's not an alien housing market. Uh, people own their homes or, or lease them or sometimes lease apartments in them. Um, some cities in the empire had, like, apartment blocks. Hmm. I don't know, you know, that Athens would have had anything like that nothing like that survives but if you go to like ostia um near near rome or the building regulations that we have for constantinople which is being built up pretty rapidly in this period so it's this megalopolis that's being constructed largely from scratch um and you know we have building you know code regulations basically that talk about five and six story you know apartment block buildings uh, but i don't think that was you know going on in in, hmm. in athens probably um so we we don't have that kind of really specific evidence for athens in particular like why would anybody bother to record in a literary work his his leasing arrangements (laughs) but we do have information about all of that in this period from egypt because we have all of the papyri that survive in egypt because of the dry climate and Mm. Those are basically people's paperwork that, you know, they no longer needed or wanted and kind of threw out in, in heaps, uh, which is great because then we, you know, we, we can find them. And it's all the stuff that no one ever thought was worth preserving, but is wonderful for us. <laughs> and there you find all kinds of complicated arrangements about housing and leasing and, you know, subdivisions and subleases hmm. and all kinds of things. Yeah. Hmm. You mentioned some troubles in Attica in the later part of the period. Uh, the troubles would have been, well, so in the, around 529, the Emperor Justinian, who was a pretty thoroughgoing Christianizer, um, you know, kind of, you could call him totalitarian in this way. He wanted a perfectly Christian society. He closed down the pagan philosophical schools in Athens and the professors left. Uh, we don't know if they ever came back. Maybe some did, but at any rate, that tradition of studying at Athens pretty much came to an end. Mm. Uh, there's also a decline in state support for higher culture under and after Justinian. The empire was in trouble militarily on a number of fronts, so a lot of money was diverted uh, to the to the army, and e- e- even then they had trouble keeping up. And in the late 6th century, we start getting Slavic raids, uh, from across the Danube, and they reach all the way down to Attica. Uh, there's even one Hun raid that made it pretty far. 
but the, the Slavic raids were a little bit more destructive. And, and then after that point, like after the 590s, Attica and Athens kind of fade from the attention of our sources. Mm. So it's difficult to, you know, we, we just don't have that kind of density of, of references and sources that we do for the previous period. So it loses its, mm. uh, you know, possibly even its market for students um, and... <clears throat> And, you know, it, it enters what you could reasonably call a dark age. Hmm. Are there theories why a dark age occurred at this point? Oh, yeah, there are always theories. Mm-hmm. What, <laughs> um, do you believe, but, what do you believe? I mean, it, it's not something that it doesn't affect Athens any more than any other place, right? This is something that happens to the empire as a whole. And I could list some of the factors really quickly. You First, you have the Justinianic plague in the 540s, which... Um, some argue, you know, killed a large part of the population. I'm not convinced by that, but even if you believe it killed 10% of the population, still, and, and continued to recur, you know, every decade, every 15 years afterwards. So that was a major disruption. Also, in part because it undermines the tax base of the empire. Uh, so the, uh, the state is drawing few, less revenue. Um, and it, it is also because of some decisions made by Justinian to wage wars. These are wars of choice in North Africa and Italy, and in part Armenia in the east. He gets the empire caught up in all these simultaneous wars that are expensive, and toward the later 6th century, they're not winning them all the time. Um, and so you start getting raiders coming across the frontiers at greater numbers. Raiders carry off people. They disrupt your agricultural base. They defeat your armies potentially. This all costs money, so you're losing money. You're 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 often you're throwing your revenue, you know, good good revenue after the bad, um, and it kind of enters a, a spiral of war and fiscal decline, which is aggravated by the fact that it finds itself at war on multiple fronts with serious enemies, uh, specifically the Avars uh, on in the north on the other side of the Danube and the Persian Empire in the east. And those are two major forces that the empire, the Roman Empire can hold off if it's fighting only one of them at a time. If it's fighting one of them at a time, it can usually beat them. But if it's fighting two of them at the same time and you have all kinds of other peripheral uh, you know, uh, and, uh, players taking advantage of the situation to raid here and there, it all gets really, really nasty, really fast. And in the early 7th century, you have this global world war with the avars and the romans and the persians all it's it's messy and even when that war is over and the romans win that war more or less at great cost and then the arabs come along and just pick up the pieces mm-hmm. within like a few years so they, they never recover from that economically at, at least not for centuries and centuries athens was always part of the empire it was never lost because after all, Constantinople can access coastal Greece just with its fleet, and the emperors invested heavily in having a fleet in in that period, seventh century and after. Uh, so Athens was always part of the empire. It was just uh, their provincial backwater for a while. Hmm. How many years did you live in Greece before you moved away for the first time? I came to the U.S. for college, so that was that would be eighteen years, and then I interrupted my grad work to spend a couple years in the Greek army. How did growing up, when you think back, how did growing up in Greece and your having family there, 
how did that influence or did it? And, and if so, how did it influence you becoming a historian in that area? Well, I ask myself that a, a <laughs> lot. Um, I'm not entirely sure that that it did, in part because when I came to the U.S., I was a physicist, and I, hmm. that's what I began to study in college, and I was good at math and physics and things like that. Um, I came with a rather strong prejudice against the humanities, especially uh, ancient Greek, which we had been taught in a fairly atrocious way that made me hate it uh, in, in Greece itself. I wanted nothing more to do with that. And the intellectual journey that led me from, <laughs> from physics to philosophy and then to history, then to ancient Greek and, and Byzantium is a complicated one, but it played out in the U.S., specifically in the much sort of freer intellectual environment of an American college where you can explore different courses and if something interests you, you, you can take a course in it or you go to the library and get books uh, about it. Uh, uh, and that happened there. And I, let me just say, I was <laughs> perfectly aware of the irony, uh, you know, a few years into my you know college uh, career of, of picking up textbooks of ancient Greek. <laughs> I, I was, uh, you know, that was major egg on my face at the time. But, you know, mm -hmm. that was changing interests. And I had, I had found reasons to go and explore that tradition in a way that I never had in Greece. Um, but once I did, uh, you know, a lot of the experiences and perceptions of things that I had um, absorbed in Greece all those years came back. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously it played a role, but it's not something that happened there. Mm. Yeah, hmm. that's that's the American college system, and hmm. that and how it allowed me to explore just different fields and ask different questions that wouldn't have been possible in Greece, uh, because the uh, university system is fairly rigid in, in what it allows you to do, and that is in part why my parents sent me to the U.S. because they knew uh, about that system and how much more flexible it is here. It has been really enjoyable speaking with you today, Anthony. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for the opportunity, Andrew. Again, everybody, the monograph that I referenced at the start of the episode that Dr. Caldellis wrote is called The Christian Parthenon, Classicism and Pilgrimage in Byzantine Athens. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Anthony and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.